we need some serious system thinking changes in our current processes, our current um, government. We need new policies. We need everything from corporations to think differently, as well as consumers to think differently. And um, it's, it's a very ambitious goal. But I think in order to really make some planetary changes, we need to change our systems. You are listening to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. Today is January 17th, 2021. Welcome to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. I am your host, Tim Hampton. For today's episode, I'm joined by my friend, Nicole Arsenal. Nicole is a passionate advocate of the circular economy and is the Sustainability Program Director at York University. Today, Nicole and I are examining the challenges and the opportunities of the circular economy. Welcome, Nicole. Great, thank you um, so much, Tim, for having me uh, on this podcast. I really look forward to this conversation. It's my pleasure, thank you. Let's start by talking about the concept of the circular economy. What does a circular economy look like? Let's start talking about waste. Um, So we have a take-make waste model uh, where we're exploiting our natural resources um, and we're very inefficient in terms of our current model, in terms of our linear system, which is impacting our planet, um, driving our climate crisis and depleting natural resources. Um, Looking at some of our waste issues, um, plastic waste, um, for example, scientists um, expect that there could be as much plastic as fish in the ocean by 2050. Uh, electronic waste, um, you know, one year's electronic waste could be as many as 15 million tons. Uh, food waste, about one third of our food is wasted. Um, and yet um, so many people are going hungry and struggling with food security. Textile waste, another huge one, uh, where about one third of our textiles is going to landfill. Um, and that's because we've got, you know, a fast fashion throwaway culture when it comes to, to textile and clothing. This is leading us to being in what's called the Anthropocene. The Anthropocene is a new geological interval um, and a puffed mark by human um, activity fundamentally um, altering Earth's um, systems, leaving a permanent record on the Earth. Uh, the Anthropocene um, is estimated to have originated in around the 1950s. Uh, were um, what's called the Great Acceleration, uh, which is um, when rapid industrialization began. This waste poses critical threats to our planet, animals, including plastic, um, including plastic waste in the oceans, threatening certain fish species and extinction. A couple of things that you said stood out to me, and one was this idea of a linear economy, which is, you know, grab it from the earth, alter it, use it, and chuck it the first time. And this is sort of militating towards the idea of a circular economy where not so much winds up being tossed out, but actually getting reused. So what are the things preventing us from doing that? Sometimes it's about mindset, knowledge, and, um, you know, companies who haven't um, really had the foresight um, yet to really take this up. Um, So understanding what the circular economy economy is, as defined by the Ellen uh, MacArthur Foundation, is looking beyond the take waste, um, you know, extractive model, where a circular economy is looking at designing waste out, um, designing pollution out, 
um, keeping products and materials in use, um, regenerating natural systems. So looking at you know, a nature-based um, solution where we're not con continuously extracting new resources to continuously um, produce and it's creating value within our systems. Um, and corporations, you know, can refine value, uh, which is actually um, an economic um, advantage for the business um, to implement, you know, these changes within their own business. Um, I think, you know, looking at our current linear economy, um, there's so many side effects. And, you know, currently, uh, many of these uh, companies aren't responsible for you know, the waste that they're producing, you know, the harm that it's causing to the environment. Well, who pays for it? Really, it's society who's paying for it. It's not the companies and they're continuing to make profit and not contributing to how we're addressing these issues. I know that uh, the bottling industry, for example, has had some success pushing back against the notion of a bottle deposit, um, which is a very effective way of ensuring that uh, bottles get reused. It's something we see in Ontario with beer bottles in particular. And I remember when I was young, you could actually return pop bottles. You get a 750 milliliter bottle of Swiss cream soda, drink it down, and then you return it for a deposit. But the companies are very keen to push back on that because their impression is that they don't make as much money. It's not economically useful to them. And yet, as you point out, we wind up paying for disposal usually through municipal taxes or whatever, and then also the, the impact of having landfill and everything. What are, what are some of the ways you might see around that issue? Yeah, so I think um, that's a really good example with the beer store. I mean, I think um, we've seen great success um, over the decades on, uh, you know, bottle uh, both beer and, and wine returns. And I think it's an effective um, solution. Um, and I think looking at how do we really start to um, bring about um, ways of recycling these materials um, where our current systems are, are you know, our current um, systems where it comes to manufacturers and how we recycle, you know, municipal recycling. Um, often these industries don't talk to each other, right? So um, currently um, a lot of our, our recycling ends up being incinerated because we don't have the capacity to deal with our own recycling. I mean, um, you know, just a few years ago, we were continuing to send um, a lot of our recycling to third world countries where they finally said, no, um, we're not gonna be accepting these, which is, is great in my opinion. Why are we shipping our, our, our waste to third world countries to deal with? We need to be changing our own mindset, A, and reducing the waste we're, we're producing to begin with. Um, but we need, to, we, we need to be able to manage our own waste. Um, and this is where I think we need better systems and institutions to be talking to each other. We need government re regulations. We need manufacturers. We need um, industry, the recycling industry, to all be working together on common solutions. Um, but is also looking at the product itself and how we're using it. Um, you know, are we creating um, these plastic bottles out of recycled materials? Are we um, creating these um, bottles out of, you know, compostable materials? You know, how, how are these things created? And I think there's so many complexities to these things um, because when you look at creating things out of other materials and then um, how do you how do you dispose of it when we don't have the proper infrastructure to dispose of things um, and we've seen that recently you know with some compostable uh, materials that have been um, put out you know in the food industry but they can't be composed um, composted in our municipal um, systems 
Um, so all these partners or all these uh, stakeholders need to come together to figure out better systems. If we're talking about a circular economy, then we need to construct a loop that involves everybody involved in it. Yes. Uh, and, and right now it is linear in that it's always your problem. It's hot potato down the road from me to the recycler to quite possibly landfill. Part of this is, is there, there ought to be more attention paid to the difficulties of recycling um, and, and making it easier to recycle and reuse stuff that, that would otherwise wind up in landfill. And, and there's no signal right now. How, how would you construct a signal to the companies that are producing things um, that, would, that would reduce the waste? hundred um, percent. I think that's, uh, you know, definitely an issue where um, I think consumers don't know what to do with things. You know, everybody thinks, oh, there's a recycling symbol. That means that it must be recyclable. The reality is a lot of things aren't recycled in our municipal, um, you know, blue bins and each municipality is different. Um, and, um, you know, living, um, I personally live in York Region, so our, um, our blue box is different from, you know, people who may be living in Toronto, which accepts different things. Um, so I think um, this is where we need to make it easier on the consumer on what to do with waste, because I think uh, people get lost. Um, people get lost when they see, oh, well, this is recyclable. Um, let's take, for example, the, the black takeout container. Um, you know, a lot of people think, oh, well, that's recyclable. But for the most part, that's actually garbage. We, cur we currently can't um, recycle the those black um, containers within our own systems. Um, so that's just an example. And, and people not knowing what to do with what when it comes to waste. Um, another good example is the coffee cup. You know, a lot of people think, oh, well, it's made out of paper. I should be able to throw it in, you know, my, my recycling. But the, the reality is it's got a coating which prevents it from being properly recycled in, in our own uh, municipalities. One of the things that um, I came across in the work you're doing is, is references to the United Nations and their sustainable development goals. Goal number 12 is the responsible consumption and production. Um, or is responsible consumption and production. Where do you see this goal being put into action? For us to be able to achieve it, we need to really start rethinking our systems and we really need to start um, incorporating um, how we're gonna get there, which, which requires real innovation and dedication. Um, I think, you know, working at an academic institution, for example, this is a real opportunity for um, our academic institutions in higher ed to, to play a critical role in how we're, we're innovating and rethinking um, our current processes and systems and working with industry, working with um, corporations to rethink um, how we're doing things and really looking at uh, nature-based um, solutions and really having a mindset to rethink our current systems and looking at um, the overall hierarchy of, of waste and you know, for, for years in, you know, the 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, the big thing was recycle, recycle, recycle. Well, recycling is not our, our solution. You know, we first need to rethink about what we're doing and how we um, reduce the use, um, first of all. And I think, you know, plastic bottles is a great example. Um, you know, I, I'm an advocate. We shouldn't have any plastic bottles to begin with, you know. Um, 
you know, especially when you look at, you know, things like pop, right? Um, there's no benefits to, to pop. Obviously, a lot of people like drinking it, um, but it's full of sugar, which, you know, has so many um, health issues. Um, you know, it's, it's taking water from certain areas that, you know, people have water security issues. So, you know, you're taking this water, um, you're adding, um, you know, sugar additives, and then you're selling it at a higher cost. So same thing with bottled water. Um, you know, there's so many human rights uh, issues around around the bottled water and and uh, plastic bottles. So, I think we need to rethink how we do things, um, and it's definitely changing mindset and looking at how we're impacting um, our planet and and looking at um, how we do things differently. And I think the Sustainable Development Goals is a great example where, you know, these goals were set out that we need to achieve them by 2030. You know that's within the next decade, we need some serious system thinking changes in our current processes, our current um, government, we need new policies, we need everything from corporations to think differently, as well as consumers to think differently. And um, it's, it's a very ambitious goal. But I think in order to really make some planetary changes, we need to change our systems. The corporations exist to make profit. And so they're going to respond to either saving money or getting more business or regulation. And so theoretically, they're supposed to be responsive to, to what governments put in place. And, and governments are supposed to be responsive to us as citizens. And so a lot of it boils down to attitudes and, and what our mindset is, what, what our expectation is. And, and we were talking a little bit before we began recording about this show, Mad Men which is about ad execs in the 50s and 60s. And the main character, Don Draper and his family, they show him having a picnic on a beautiful verdant hillside. And then they show them driving away in their car and they, they, they shoot back to the hill and it's all covered in their litter, which you know, is a shock to us in the current era, the current age, because you know, we would not, most people wouldn't spoil the wilderness by leaving all their picnic litter behind. Most of us would pack it and leave. But back then it was a drop in the bucket. Mm -hmm. And what you're pointing out with, for example, the, the black plastic and the coffee cups, it's just out of sight, out of mind. It's not any better, really. It's just going to a different location. And so what are the mindset changes you anticipate or even hope for in the next 10 years that would make the sustainability goal, for example, of UN possible? Yeah, well, I think, um, I think businesses really need to take sustainability at their core. And um, I mean, I think it's proven from many great um, sustainable businesses such as Unilever, uh, Patagonia. Um, there's great um, companies out there who are really starting to rethink how are they doing things um, and really driving um, from a, a purpose-driven um, stakeholder approach where they're really looking at um, all of their stakeholders um, as part of their business model um, and not just a, a profit um, uh, model where they're, they're looking at their shareholder profits. So I think it's, it's really rethinking business, um, looking at how business can find value um, in, in what they're doing and and I think part of that also comes down to, um, you know, government relations and, and figuring out how government policy can really impact uh, business to drive change. Um, however, we also need to make sure that, you know, we're not pushing the, um, 
the cost on customers, looking at uh, how businesses um, need to rethink things and looking at how um, purpose-driven businesses can really um, embed sustainability in everything that they're doing and still you know, um, be profitable, um, but taking the approach where you're looking at um, the social, the um, environmental and the economic. What is the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and how is it contributing to the circular economy? The Ellen MacArthur Foundation's mission is basically to accelerate the transition of a circular economy. Um, they develop and promote the idea of a circular economy. Um, they work with businesses, um, academia, policymakers, institutions, really to look at mobilizing solutions uh, at scale and globally. And some of the, um, you know, some of the big names currently working um, with them are Unilever, um, IKEA. IKEA is another, um, you know, one that we haven't talked about yet. Um, and they're um, really moving towards how do they become circular by 2030? IKEA wants to make it easier for customers to acquire care for and pass on products in a circular way, such as repairing, reusing, reselling, and recycling them. IKEA is committed to designing um, all of their products to be 100% um, circular um, from the beginning using renewable recycled materials and developing circular uh, capabilities in their supply chain. So there's a lot of great innovation happening um, from IKEA. Um, you know, some would argue currently IKEA is producing a lot of waste as well. So it's great that, um, you know, it's great to see large chains um, really embracing sustainability because um, hopefully they can lead the way for making it easier for smaller businesses. You know, the same thing with Amazon. Um, Amazon's another one where, um, Amazon gets a lot of flack and, you know, there's a lot of issues and a lot of sustainable issues um, with Amazon, um, but they're really also trying to embrace sustainability as part of um, what they're doing and trying to, to make a difference. So um, it's, it's one of those balancing acts where, you know, people are going to consume things, um, you know, you can't stop people from, from purchasing on Amazon. Um, and, and we've probably seen major growth during the current pandemic where people are ordering online. Um, there's significant um, uh, impacts as well, looking at uh, how Amazon, um, using Amazon Prime versus their regular systems. Um, Amazon Prime certainly has a, a larger footprint uh, when you look at uh, things not being shipped together or, you know, less things on the truck because, you know, the urgency of shipping versus um, less things going to or more things going to a certain area. I want to talk about Amazon a lot more, but before we do, I want to backtrack to Ikea because I, Ikea, there, there was a couple of themes you brought up. One was Ikea and the other one was um, making it easier to resell what you buy. And I'd like to, I'd like to look at both of those. One of those things that I, I don't give Ikea credit enough for is when you buy something from Ikea, it comes in a, a very, very plain packaging, like the, as plain as can be, it's industrial. But what they walk, what they do is they walk you through a showroom where you're looking at the couches and the chairs. And this is distinct from what happens with a bottle of Tide. The bottle of Tide is a display. And so it has to be attractive or at least eye-catching, which means it's red plastic, which is probably harder to recycle. It's got a big label on it. It's an awkward shape just because that's intended to draw the eye. And yet that gets disposed of every time you buy it versus the couch 
in Ikea's showroom, which sits there for weeks or months, right? So there's very little impact from the display. And this is even truer for Amazon. The display is, is like, you could run the display on your laptop with a watch battery, like the amount mm -hmm. of energy and, and damage to the planet to show you the selection they have is negligible. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really interesting. I hadn't really thought of Ikea in those terms, but they are really minimalist when it comes to packaging. But the other thread I wanted to pull on is this idea that um, a company could take a longer view on the life cycle of the products it sells you. And it almost makes me think that maybe Kijiji's the next uh, unicorn because if they got their act together, they could go to Amazon and they can go to Walmart and say, let us track everything somebody's bought. So you or I could log into our account and see all the things we bought. And without, without barely, without any effort at all, we could resell that couch, knowing exactly when it was bought, what it was made with, you know, you know how much it cost originally, and even what they're going for now. And it, they could really facilitate a marketplace for people reselling things down the line. Um, and if they, they could become a real hub, if they even just got Amazon and Walmart to play with them, um, they could really facilitate this reuse idea. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, definitely. And the other thing, um, you know, you bring up a good point about longevity. And I think a lot of corporations and companies are making things that, you know, don't last very long so that you have to keep buying, you know, and we've seen that obviously in the tech industry where, you know, things start getting faulty after X amount of years to encourage you to buy something else. Um, and I think that's where you're absolutely right. How do we um, make products that um, have a lifetime, you know, use where, you know, it's not just a single use where it'll be used for a couple of years and then it ends up in landfill or, you know, um, haphazardly recycled. I was looking at an article called the hot new product Amazon and Target are obsessing over is boxes, the humble cardboard boxes in the midst of a design revolution. And there's a few, there's a few concepts in here that I thought were really, were really interesting. The first is it's a reminder that cardboard boxes have not been around forever. It used to be wooden boxes and they found that it was cheaper and lighter and more flexible to do things with cardboard, which, which implies that there could be yet another uh, material used in the future that might be more environmentally uh, friendly. You know, this idea that nothing's set in stone, right? It doesn't, it, cardboard hasn't been forever. It doesn't need to be forever. But the other thing is that um, they talk about some of the push and pull when it comes to having really plain packaging versus really having glitzy packaging. And even though you're buying things online where that is where the eye is drawn and the money is extracted from the consumer. It shouldn't matter what the box looks like when you get it, at least in my view. I'm not an aesthete, but still, it seems kind of crazy that I would expect a beautiful box to arrive with the stuff I've ordered. And yet you can see this push and pull in this article. They talk about the different point of view that Target takes from Amazon. Target is saying, that the box itself, the unboxing, that the Apple way of making the unboxing part of the experience is definitely in their mindset. And that contributes to creating boxes that are more difficult to recycle, more expensive to produce, et cetera. And, and, and the article does allude to this idea that in the era of e-commerce, boxes are the new storefront. Well, they just aren't. The, the, the website is the storefront. That's when you can, where you can apply all the magic of marketing in my view. 
And they, they also talk about a company called Brandless, which strikes me as kind of like what we have in Ontario, which is no name, right? This idea that we are minimalizing the expense of everything but the product inside. You're getting the best possible value by us not even think, not even capitalizing the name of the product. Like that's how cheap we are so that you can get the best product inside, I think is something that, you know, we really ought to encourage because it's not the box that we care about. And then there was a final point in there that I thought was really interesting. And that is that Target in their, in their efforts to identify where they should invest in decorating their boxes, which again, I don't agree with, but anyway, in their effort to do that, they discovered that uh, a mere three boxes accounted for 70% of all the shipments the company was making. And one of the things I've been thinking about, and one of the things that we, we had discussed online a little bit is this notion of whether Amazon could have reusable packaging that it would come to you in a box that you would return just like you return a bottle. And might Amazon actually at least break even if not save money by doing that. And I think that there's, you know, I would love to just sit down with Jeff, my buddy, Jeff Bezos and talk about this because it really, for, for one thing, you know, I'm weak. And if I return beer bottles, I'm coming home with beer, okay? And if I have an Amazon box that needs to be returned and will only be returned when I buy something from Amazon, that's good for Amazon. And they get the box back. And there's even things they could do because they've got a box that's reusable, they can afford to at least in some of them put a transponder, right? Which would talk to your Nest uh, doorbell, which is part of the Amazon ecosystem and tell you when the box arrived. You know, there's so many things that Amazon could do to worm its way into your consciousness this way. I know you're probably not thrilled about that aspect, but I'm always trying to think of ways to make it worth the company's while so that we don't have to resort to regulation. And this seems like there's a lot of opportunities there. And the other thing is that if we, if we for example, said that this 70%, which is mere three boxes would fit, then okay, the rest can be cardboard, fine. You know, like, well, we'll there's diminishing returns. We'll deal with that later. But if you have 70% of the stuff going out of your store in standardized boxes, it makes shipping and automating the shipping and the loading of the trucks so much easier. And then the other thing is if you look at containerized shipping, you know, nobody for, no government forced containerized shipping. Containerized shipping was done because it was cheaper. And I realize there's a, there's a, a gap or, or a, it isn't quite true to say that containerized shipping and delivery is the same thing because delivery is the end point. It's always the individual item, not the thousands packed into a container. So I, I, I do recognize there's a difference there, but nevertheless, some of the advantages that are listed for containerized shipping apply. It's it over time, you optimize around the form factors of the standardized boxes. You, you can have better tracking and also what sits on your doorstep is now completely anonymous. You know, am I, am I going to be a porch pirate thinking there's a 50-50 chance it's a box of cereal or a box of jewelry? Probably not. It may even be empty waiting to be returned, right? So you, you actually cut back on that issue. So I guess what I'm saying is it, it seems like a failure of imagination that we don't have more reuse. And a, and a company like Amazon could say, we are emphatically in favor of the environment. And we think everybody should do this. And of course, only Amazon can afford to do it easily. 
because they're so organized and actually sort of bully the rest of the industry into doing it. They might even bully the industry into using their standard of boxes. So I'm surprised it's not happening. I'm kind of dismayed. Yeah, this is a really, really great point and, and a fascinating um, discussion. Um, and I think there's definitely opportunity to see better reuse. Um, looking at cardboard, um, particularly if you were taking, um, you know, virgin, um, you know, paper um, is one thing if it's recycled versus, um, you know, supply and demand for um, in terms of forestry. Um, so I think there's definitely opportunity for this reuse um, system. My, I guess, immediate concern would be, um, what are these boxes made from, you know, and are they plastic? Are we using more plastic to create these, um, these bins? What happens to these um, bins? You know, I, I'm foreseeing, you know, uh, millions of these bins um, across the world, right? So what are they made from? You know, how are they fabricated? Um, what's the environmental footprint of making them and what's its, you know, life cycle, what happens at end of use with them. So that's sort of my immediate um, thought when, when you were talking about that and obviously in shipping cost or, or is it, you know, weight of the material, um, obviously more weight is, um, you know, has larger, um, uh, you know, uh, larger emissions footprints. So looking at all these factors, I think, um, you know, certainly, um, certainly something for consideration. I think there's definitely opportunity. Um, and again, I think, like I said, looking at what they're made from is probably what and how they're made would be, would be definitely um, of importance. Yeah, I think there are some mitigating factors to those concerns. One is when it comes to recycling, theoretically, you know, there could be a hundred million of them all made of the same material that is recyclable. And so mm -hmm. you would chip it down, melt it down and reuse it. It should, should be compared to the vast variety of materials that go into shipping materials now. Um, it, it seems like an easier nut to crack, especially since there would be such scale there. Somebody ought to be able to make money doing it. Um, you also mentioned the, the weight. And I agree that, um, Undoubtedly, these reusable boxes would weigh more than their cardboard equivalents. I guess the, one, of the, one of the reasons I'm not too concerned about, well, there's a couple of reasons. One is for whatever reason, the shipping industry is quite happy using these incredibly heavy steel boxes. It must be worth a while. Now, of course, shipping, the, the, the impact of, of weight on shipping is relatively negligible compared to a van full of stuff. But then the other thing is that we're approaching an era where, and th this is not science fiction, this is happening. Amazon is buying, I think, it, I think they said 10,000 or is it 100,000 uh, electric vans. And I, I do appreciate that some electricity is produced with combustion, but overall it is, it is much more, um, much better for the environment, especially in congested city centers, which is where most of the deliveries are happening. So there's light at the end of the tunnel there too. So I, I think that, I don't know, just, and especially with all the, 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 the Amazon talks about something they call the matrix, which is their um, machine learning uh, system that studies uh, their shipping, uh, how they package things, how well, how, uh, if there's complaints about things being broken and so on, they have an enormous amount of information at their disposal. They can really optimize around that better than anybody else. Uh, so I am hopeful that, that it's still possible, but I guess time will tell. I just think that um, 
And I think what, what, what you're pointing out is the danger of regulation, because if we make the regulation that says you have to do it, whether it's economically defensible or not, we run the risk of actually creating another problem, which is the, the expense and the, the weight of these things. So uh, I still want that conversation with Jeff. <laughs> We're seeing um, a few examples actually um, in the food industry. Um, I know in the city of Toronto, there's a pilot um, as well as one in, I think, Waterloo, uh, where it's a similar type uh, concept for food and takeout containers. Um, so there's a few restaurants who have taken on um, this challenge where, you know, they're using these reusable containers and the company will, um, from what I understand, you know, you, you order it, you get it delivered or you pick it up and then the company will come back and pick up your reusable container. Um, so it's a really cool concept. Um, again, that reuse um, as opposed to, you know, keeping uh, everything, you know, buying, throwing away um, trying to recycle things. The other thing I wanted to talk about is um, along this note is um, thinking about not only the packaging, but what is being shipped. Um, and you talked about Tide and Tide is a good example where A, um, the shape of the bottle limits you on, you know, how you can and, um, pack so many things. So they're probably put in boxes as opposed to individual you know, containers, um, the way the, the shape is, you're limited as to how you can stack them. There's been some definite efficiencies looking at um, how things are shaped for better um, efficient um, transportation. Transportation impacts significantly um, climate change, you know, and, and certainly as we move to more and more people buying stuff online, there's more and more shipping. Uh, where is it coming from? You know, are we shipping stuff from China? Um, so these all have impacts, but going back to Tide for a minute and looking at um, Tide and looking at the whole um, cleaning industry, for example, and I've got with me here um, uh, what's called True Earth and their packaging um, is basically a sleeve and it's got uh, eco strips. So instead of buying a huge container of Tide, um, which again, as you mentioned, it's hard to, harder to recycle. It's, you know, got, uh, you know, the red dye, you know, so on and so forth. It's one package um, that's recyclable. Um, it's basically an envelope with a whole bunch of um, little uh, eco strips. And these eco strips, you put it in your washing machine. And it's basically, um, you know, the, the laundry detergent that you need to wash your clothes, but it doesn't have the water. So when we start rethinking and, you know, going back to the circular economy for a minute, thinking back to, do we really need all these cleaning products with a whole bunch of water creating all this packaging? So it's rethinking how we're doing things. And, um, you know, I'm seeing this coming more and more in the market through, um, through different companies. Um, now, what I like about True Earth is that they're also eco in terms of what's in them, as opposed to, um, you know, just making that chemical into, um, you know, a, a, a strip. Um, they're, they're trying to use more natural, um, natural ingredients versus um, chemical ingredients that are more harmful on, on the planet. So that brings me to the last question, and that is... Um... What are the things that individuals and households can do to help promote a circular economy? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, I think to live, um, you know, a zero waste lifestyle, 
Um, people need to rethink how they're doing things, you know, and really look at, um, you know, this is a great example in terms of the laundry strips, looking at all of our products that we need, um, everything from, you know, cooking, um, you know, there's opportunities. And, you know, in my own community, there's a great uh, store called Replenish, and you can take your own containers in and refill things. Um, so this is a great opportunity. Um, they exist in many communities and, uh, you know, fortunately it's a growing movement where um, you can really reduce your own waste and, um, you know, sort of think differently about what you're doing. Bulk Burn, uh, before um, the pandemic hit, um, had a great program that they were rolling out where you could bring in your own, you know, mason jars or bags um, and hopefully they revive that again uh, soon. Um, but you know, looking at your shampoos, your soaps, your cleaning products, um, olive oils, vinegars, you know, anything that you need, you can rethink how you're doing things in your own home. And that's, you know, certainly a first step in, in what you're doing. Thanks very much, Nicole. This has been a very encouraging discussion. This brings us to the end of today's episode. I'd like to thank Nicole for being my guest today. Thank you so much for, um, for having me on the show, Tim. This is great. My pleasure. All the articles we mentioned will be in the show notes along with Nicole's LinkedIn address. My name is Tim Hampton and you can reach me at tim at unusuallywellinformed.com. Thank you for joining us. See you at the next show. Thank you for listening to the Unusually Well-Informed podcast. opinions expressed by the host and guests on the unusually well-informed podcast are their own and do not reflect that of their employer or any other affiliation. 